my belief is that, you know, when you um, have a longing in your soul to go and live a particular kind of life, and you might not even be consciously aware of it, life will join you. Life will cooperate with you to steer you to that point. That was Sarah Wilson, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott and in this podcast series I'll be uncovering the world of regenerative agriculture, its people, practices and principles and empowering you to apply their learnings and experience to your business and life. I'm an eighth generational Australian farmer who transitioned my family farm from industrial methods to holistic regenerative practices. Join me as I dive deep into the regenerative journeys of other farmers, chefs, health practitioners and anyone else who's up for a yarn and find out why and how they transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with Charlie Arnott. G'day, very excited to share this episode with you. It's with Sarah Wilson, the journalist, TV presenter, blogger, media consultant um, and prolific author. I, uh, I was lucky to catch up with her um, in Sydney um, and in her natural habitat, as it were. Um, we talked about anxiety, we talked about the connection of regenerative agriculture to health, uh, we talked about um, nature being the antidote to so many of our... Uh, you know, human health-based um, problems, and she's also the author of her two two most recent books. Um, First, we make the beast beautiful, and released um, only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this one wild and precious life, a hopeful path forward in a fractured world. A wonderful woman who is uh, so insightful. So many life experiences she um, shares in her books, and also. Um, shares with us today. So enjoy um, this wonderful interview with Sarah Wilson. Hello, Sarah Wilson. Welcome to your uh, your living room. No, what, 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 what room <laughs> are we in? This is actually my study. It's in sort of yoga room and room for when my very large extended family come to stay. They bunker down. They bunker, bunker down. down. They bring swags, literally. Good country people bring mm. swags. Yep. And on the train, uh, really good. Mm. To Canberra to um, Canberra to Central. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Yeah. We used to do the train with um, from boarding school back to Yass in the, the days of dog boxes, where there used to be you know the corridors down the side and you the cabins and there'd be oh, seating yeah. and there's yeah, six yeah. or eight to a cabin and you'd be up in the luggage compartment and just. Lots of bad behaviour, but that was a long time ago. Always reminds me of an Agatha Christie movie. Yes. They always happened in those kind of... Yeah, 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 the conductor and (laughs) Mm -hmm. was it Mr... Well, that was the clue, though, wasn't it? Poirot. That's it, Mr. Poirot. Agatha Christie. (laughs) Not Enid Blyton. Um, So, Sarah, tell me where we are and why... Why are you here? Why do I live Why? here? Yeah, um, That's a good question. Uh, we're, we're currently in Bondi, quite close to the beach. Mm. We're looking out over North Bondi. I'm in an apartment on the top floor. Um, and it's actually really quite a nice vista. It's across the top of trees and my apartment building backs onto sort of this strip of trees and lots of fig trees and palms. And it's a channel that goes from the beach all the way, winds all the way down to um, Hyde Park. 
So the bird life fly um, sort of from from Hyde Park right from the harbour all the way back up here. So oh, because it goes from here to Rose Bay. Is that the one? Yeah, the yeah, yeah, up and over. Um, was it called that park, that Cooper Park, Cooper park. and all of that? Built yeah. Hill there. So there's this continuous tree line. So you know what uh, that's called? It's called a corridor of green. I think you're right. A corridor. I like that. A, a green <laughs> corridor. So um, and I'm um, just as you know about 100 metres from the water. So I chose to live here when I finally stopped backpacking around the world. Um, That was eight years of carrying one bag around the world. And when I finally decided to live somewhere and get real-life adult furniture, I figured I should live somewhere where I'm going to be in nature. So this is as close as I could get to it while living in a very, very busy city. Um, So you can... See, from my wet hair, I snuck in a afternoon swim, like literally a jump in the ocean. Uh, it was pretty cold. I turned up and there was no one here. <laughs> no, don't, <laughs> don't tell anyone I left the door open. Um, in, this, in this undisclosed um, address. Yes, that's I've described fairly accurately. Can we say Bondi, we meant Balmain. Yeah. So, look, I ended up here because I it was an experiment, like everything I do in life. Um, after travelling around with sort of, what ended up being one backpack, um, I thought I should try settling, you know, do what you're not doing is is a bit of my, is one of my many mottos. And um, so, yeah, I needed to be in nature. I need to see a horizon and we're kind of almost looking at one, you know, there's, I like, I, I need space, I need to be in nature to feel that there's meaning in my life. Um, and, or more accurately, so that I can connect to meaning. So, being in nature actually takes me straight in, to, like a portal, like a green corridor, into what nice. matters. Yeah, so that's why I chose here. I also, I know this is going to sound a bit woo-woo, but I feel the water in Bondi, and I've lived in different areas around the world um, and sought out water, ocean water. Um, I feel that Bondi has, the water here has an energy that is really effervescent. It brings me back to life in an instant. I find it very, very healing. And I don't know what it is. I don't, it, you know, it's just something that I feel and always have felt. So, yeah. It's a wonderful part of the world and you've certainly picked a ripper spot because you do have a corridor of green right in front of you. We have a horizon. You are near the water and there is a beautiful buzz. You know, there's extremes of Bondi, isn't there? But yeah. um, was coming back here a... Uh, I mean, were you growing up? Did you come back here? Were you like, putting on your big big girls' pants? Yeah, and, you know, it's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of that in my mid-40s. Um, yeah, it was a little bit of that. There was also a desire to connect to humanity. So I'm a lone operator. I go out into the world and I venture forth and I go and seek out my connections, you know, and that has worked in many ways. Um, and I've had a wonderful, wonderful life and I, I have a wonderful, wonderful life. And But what's what I've kind of not perfected is the art of intimate relationships, you know, sort of being present long enough with neighbours and a sense of community where people know to find me and they can say, can you look after the kids for a couple of hours or... You know, my nephews and nieces and my brothers and their partners can come and stay and I've got a base where they can be with me. So I needed to try that out. Um, As you can see from my um, intricately decorated 
apartment here, um, I still haven't perfected the art of furnishing. <laughs> What's that? Is that Percy the plant? What's that? Freddie the fern? It's not a fern, is it? Oh, it's like a, it's a, is it a fiddle palm or something they call it? Anyway, it's it's, nice. it's an air purifier. It's I got it's it. Subtropical. Yeah, like everything in here, every single thing you can see is secondhand. Mm. So I got that from eBay. I got a bunch of plants. There's plants all over the place, and they're all from eBay. Um, most of the furniture rugs are either from Facebook Marketplace, eBay, or the street. Good on you. So, I'm, a, I'm a street scavenger. Mm, well. So nothing's, nothing's new. So that was a little bit of a challenge, especially when it came to white goods. I'd never bought white goods in my life. I was 44. And so... Were you just just esky girl? <laughs> <laughs> that was it. An esky. Esky, um, No, I, I'd sort no, of... No, chili bag. Chili bin. Chili bin. I just sort of managed to get by. I'd either lived with people, I lived in houses, Airbnbs, yeah. Yeah. So I'm so off target right now. Yeah, as no, in, there's get, nowhere near where we're going to go. No, no, I've got one more thing to throw mm. at you. So that's fascinating. So going out to other communities in the world and travelling and be part of that for a week or a month or whatever period of time, what you're doing is you're bringing all that back to this community in some way. You know, you're, yeah. you know it might be a gesture, it might be a word, it might be a behaviour. You know, you're, that's a wonderful thing. You know, or you've just gone, some weirdness. Totally. I mean, who... who Every community needs a couple of... An esoteric um, totally. spinster wandering around the streets. Um, <laughs> I yeah. say that, come on. Well, I think there's a certain element of that. I think um, a woman in her 40s who hasn't sort of done ticked off certain boxes... All of the, the expected mm. life goals. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I get feedback from the community I now find myself in that, you know, um, that strikes some people as sort of almost odd. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, they can. That's what I reckon. Hey, I, now I, we, I interpret odd as not necessarily bad. No, no, no. They, no. Know, I, that's it. That's the yeah. that's the, the spice of you know that that bring that variety and that and getting people to think about it, you know, and then yes. they've got that choice to judge or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Now, talking about lovely people, we didn't actually talk about lovely people, but I'm mm. going to talk about You're lovely people. You're going to create person. a segue. <laughs> there isn't one. Did that work? <laughs> <laughs> Nico Plowman. Oh, yes. Yeah. Your cousin. My cousin, lovely mm. fella I went to school with when I was a little chappy and um, went our separate ways doing stuff everywhere and all sorts of things. And through, oh, wow, how was it? Just a couple of years ago we reconnected. We bumped into each other a few times and um, Conscious Club. Yeah. That's where I'd seen, I'd, I saw him some years ago and had not for some many years. And good buddy of yours. Mm. And we, we met just up the road some months ago with Nico. Yeah. yeah. So Nico, funnily enough, um, we connected um, in an airport in LA, funnily enough, in a customs line, that very long customs line. Um, but in fact, we connected properly, I believe, at Conscious Club as well. Mm. I was speaking at the Conscious Club. Yeah. And for those of you who um, don't know what we're talking give, about. Give it a plug. Yeah, it's, um, I don't think it's operating anymore, but um, my meditation teacher who also, did he teach you? Did Tim teach you? Uh, no, but one of his students taught me. Uh, okay. Yeah. And he taught Nico to become a teacher. Now, who is he? 
Tim Brown. Tim Brown. Tim Brown taught me to meditate um, probably over 10 years ago now. Mm. And um, I, I was invited, and he ran the Conscious Club. And then I was invited to speak at this, and Nico happened to be in the audience. And I think he was just starting his meditation journey. And so we connected from that and, and I don't know, we just became friends. And in fact, we became friends because at the time he was living in the south of France and Paris. They'd moved over, he and his kids had moved overseas and I joined them in Paris and then I just stayed in touch. We, I, I was in Greece going through stuff over there and he was going through stuff somewhere else and we'd ring each other. Um, and, yeah, we've been – he and I, I would describe as soulful friends, you know. Um, yeah, it's almost brother and, or sisterly in some ways. He speaks of you very fondly, I can say that because um – well, it did anyway, didn't I? Yeah. Um, and no, with all sincerity. <laughs> that's your podcast. You can say whatever you want. I can. Yeah. I can swear. Um, but, yeah, that's the, I guess that's the essence of Nico. And we, get, we pumped up his tyres a bit, for, but for good reason because, um, you know, probably if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be sitting here. You know, he, he made that um, wonderful connection. Yeah. And Tim Brown, who I spoke with the other day, he and I, we reckon there's some stuff we can do. Um, together in the mm. regenerative ag space, which is where we he's keep just, circling he's around. He's been to. Zach bushed. He has been totally mm-hmm. bushed over, which is fantastic. <laughs> no, we did chat about that the other day. If you're going to be, if you're going to be completely overwhelmed by something, or fascinated, or, or develop a intellectual or spiritual crush, Zach's not a bad one to focus it on. To. He's fantastic. Mm. I did some work with Zach in Melbourne in March when he was he just before it all, all the. Shit went down with with COVID and so on. And um, what a lovely fellow, and what a mm. what a what a um, compelling. He's, he's channeling something, isn't he? Totally. He's really channeling something. Um, and I'm sure many of your your viewers and listeners have listened to to Zach. Um, I just feel, I mean, he's got incredible knowledge. Um, that brain is unbelievable. Mm, he's a freak. Um, however, he's also got a presence with it all. And I feel that he is, he very much feels on his, on a mission. He feel, you know, he's in, a, in some sort of dharmic flow. And um, what I also like about him, you know, I think that he he feels he he speaks very purely, and he talks on different platforms. I was talking to Tim about this. I sometimes get concerned on, about some of the podcasts he'll appear on. Okay. Some of them are a bit extremist. I would personally be cautious about being associated with the host or the audience that that podcast has attracted. Um, but he doesn't seem to have that filter. And and Tim's response was he just makes himself available and he goes into whatever forum he might be invited to and he speaks his truth. And, in fact, that's right. I think he just holds his own. He holds his own. He's um, – yeah, so I, I think that's really impressive, especially in this era where people are very quick to shout down anyone with ideas that are anything even just a few millimetres left of – of centre. He is totally focused and um, he's compelled to make a change, you know, and he's got his farmer's footprint um, campaign and he's, he's I'm sort of looking to help roll out some project buy and stuff here in Australia. Um, farmer's footprint in, in Australia. So there's lots of really exciting things and what a great guy to sort of focus this attention mm. um, on. So we'll put yes. things in the, in the show notes and so on. Yeah. Um, now, let's get back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, by no means the boring stuff because this is the gold. So regenerative journey, 
the, the podcast, um, I'm interested to understand your regenerative journey, Sarah, and I, from what I know, um, your regenerative journey, in some sense, started from day one, just your lifestyle, I guess, and your mm. the, the way you were and, and how your family was in the world. Without yeah. preempting anything, I just wanted yeah. to say that's a that's that's quite a um, given. The interviewees I've had, um, that's an interesting starting point. Yeah, I suppose it is in many ways. Um, just to fill in the gaps there, um, I I sort of grew up in a family who were thinkers, I suppose, and questioners. Um, not particularly exposed to opportunities, and certainly um, came from. Um, how can I say, probably some sort of disadvantage. But um, they made the most of things. My father in particular questioned things and we were – I'm one of six kids. I'm the eldest of six kids. And when I was six, Dad moved us out to the country. Um, he – partly because they couldn't afford to live in town and he found land that was really cheap and bought a house from secondhand materials – or he, uh, he built it. And um, we had goats for milk and meat. Um, we had a vegetable garden, which was not entirely successful because it was a drought. Pretty much everything died. Um, and we lived a very simple, simple lifestyle. Now, it wasn't informed by biodynamic farming ideas or any kind of um, sort of sustainable principles per se. It was really guided by um, necessity. So um, it was sort of, you know, really quite – it was kind of almost like of an era two generations ago, you know. So it was really simple, um, not a lot of money floating around and we just had to make do. So that's, that's kind of what dictated it. And that was normal? That was normal. Well, it was normal for our normal family, for you, yeah. yeah. As I sort of got to high school – so we went to a country primary school, then I commuted into, into Canberra for high school and then I became a little bit more aware of how it wasn't normal – and, um, however, I, I probably rebelled against um, some of the thinking around my upbringing, however, maintained very much the sustainable minimalist principles. So... Um, when you say rebelled, what, 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 so you're a bit of a pushback, like, because you had a reference point now, like you, there was home. My father used to call me the little capitalist. <laughs> 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 so do you remember that show, The Good Life? Yeah, and totally. how Penelope Keith was yes. a neighbour that would just keep an eye on them and just tell them where they were all going wrong. That's dad right, called yeah. me Penelope Keith. Oh, really? Yeah. So I would just <laughs> point out to mum and dad that this was not working, that we needed to do this, this and this. And um, eventually when I was 16, I highlighted to mum and dad that we could no longer live out where we were living because we couldn't afford the water um, to fill the tanks that were now empty. So we sold up and moved into Canberra within weeks of me pronouncing this, Penelope Keith pronouncing you this. You ordained that that was to, yes, that was to happen. I, yeah, so... Well, that's interesting because, I mean, you know, uh, given that's what you said and that's what you then, that's what the family did, then did, they must have thought you had some value to the yes, conversation. Yes, yes, well, <laughs> um, so that probably gives you an indication of my level of ambition and so on. So, yes, I, I, I suppose I came from that background. I didn't swerve away from it, but I probably went off in all kinds of directions. So, you know, I, I 
got very ambitious and I, I, I loved school and I loved university and then I just I travelled very young. I, I worked from a very young age and I probably did a bunch of things that scared the living daylights out of my parents. And so from a young age I sort of moved on from my family and then, and then I had this weird sort of period from my early 20s through to my early 30s um, where I joined the the other side, the dark side. So I worked for Rupert Murdoch. Mm. I did my cadetship um, with the Herald Sun, which was an incredible experience. I shared a, an opinion page with Andrew Bolt on a Friday. Um, so I was 23. Yeah. Wow. So I think I was very... Did you really share it? Was it yeah. 50-50? He had the top half of the page and I had the bottom half of the page. How rude. You should have had the top half. I was 23. Yeah, but <laughs> I was a counterpoint. I was a convenient counterpoint. If he had been chivalrous, he might have said, Sarah, you can have the top half. No, I don't think he's got that in him. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was a female, left-wing, young, feminist voice. So I ticked off a bunch of boxes and there they plonked me. So that was fantastic. And then, of course, at 29, I became the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, yeah. uh, a veritable Bible of consumption. Um, now, I still maintain my principles, so I still wore secondhand stuff. I rode a bike to work. I didn't accept handbags and all the various gifts and things like that. I had a policy against that. Um, so, you know, I, I sort of hung on to my roots um, it was tough at times. Um, and then MasterChef happened. And again, by that stage, I was in my mid-30s and I'd started to get unwell. And this is where we get to sort of the theme of this part of your podcast. You know, it generally takes a slap down for those of us who've done a very big pivot in life um, to do that pivot, you know. and so Tension event. Yeah, yes, that's yeah. right. And so mine came, or deus ex machina, you know, um, um, mine came in my mid-30s. I was at Cosmo um, and I developed an autoimmune disease and a lot of people probably know this story by now but um, it really, really knocked me about and I got very, very unwell and I was forced to stop and pull back from everything. Um, and I was really stripped bare, Charlie, like... You know, I was stripped of just, you know, all my identity around being the editor of Cosmo, living in Sydney, living a particular life. Um, it was fast-paced. It was coffee in the morning, lots of alcohol at night. It was – I had a very destructive boyfriend at the time who fitted that whole picture mm. and I ran myself into the ground. And my belief is – and I think I'm talking to a community here who, who understand this language or appreciate it um, – my belief is that, you know, when you um, have a longing in your soul to go and live a particular kind of life, and you might not even be consciously aware of it, life will join you. Life will cooperate with you to steer you to that point. And often, if you're an A-type, and it's often us A-types, I don't know if you're an A-type, you seem a bit more chilled than that. Right. Farming's I'm probably... A, I'm a Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Soil has pulled you back from the A <laughs> front line. Um, yeah. But um, you, you often need something quite physical to happen to the, you. Yeah. yeah. A and jolt. That, yeah, a real jolt. And, and look, 
this community is full of stories like mine. Mine is not an exception at all. So in my case, I got the perfect disease. It was Hashimoto's, Hashimoto's disease, which is a thyroid disease, which just really drags you down and just gets your ego and just kind of scrapes it through the mud, you know. So you put on weight, you lose your hair, your nails fall off, you go through premature menopause, you can't have children, you, you know. Um, so it's a, it's a real screws pretty much. Yeah, everything. can't work. So everything, if you've got an A-type, um, egoic, vain kind of lifestyle and setup, it just kind of shatters that. So it was the perfect disease for the life I was leading. Just on that, um, that, you know, life can lead you to a point that you need to get to to then change to head down towards your, your purpose or whatever, however you want to frame that up. Mm. And there's a school of thought which is similar to that, that your body is the thing that goes, you know what? you got to learn a lesson, and I've actually got to shut myself down so you learn. And a very small mm-hmm. um, example of that is, is the flu, right? People get the flu in winter, yes, but winter's when winter, – what, what, what's winter after? Winter is after, you know, summer and autumn when we are, we're, we're running 100 miles an hour, the days are long, we get to winter, we're, we're shattered, you know, and our body's going – We should be hibernating. Totally, yeah, mm. yeah. We should be going to bed when the sun goes down and so on. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that the body is the all-commanding – you know, entity and just goes, you know what, you're not listening. Mm. You know, I gave you a little cold last week. You didn't mm. listen. I'm going to floor you. I'm going to put you in bed with the flu so you just pipe down and shut up and get better. It's know? the interface with life, with the rest of life, you know. It's how um, we commun- communicate and receive messages um, and, and, and join the flow of life, you know. So, yeah, I totally agree. I think we're talking exactly the same language, whether it's life or whether it's our bodies, our, our bodies is, are receiving that information. It's not a coincidence. No, it's certainly not a coincidence. And in fact, it's mostly perfect. Totally. Um, so, yeah, so that was my sort of moment. Um, and what that did was realign me. And, and look, um, there's a really great uh, Jungian psychologist called James Hollis. And um, again, I can provide the details if people want these notes. But We will have a long list of show notes, yes, definitely. Yeah, and he is an incredible voice. Um, and if you can get hold of some of his books, you'll find them really, really wonderful. But he um, has a wonderful phrase, and I actually write a fair bit about it. I interview him in my next book. Um, and he says... At some point, if you are off track, your soul will make an appointment for you with life. And um, all you've got to do is show up. Now, if you ignore the reminder, the tap on the shoulder, Mm -hmm. it will present things that become more and more violent, essentially, Um, and usually through our bodies. You know, so um, I got a few um, reminders, calendar requests, and then I ignored them and they weren't quite loud enough and they got louder and louder and then bam, down I went. And Does that message sometimes come in the form of people? I think so, yes, absolutely, mm. yeah. It can be quite subtle. Um, turn up. Yeah, and as an example, just to sort of bring back in Tim Brown and all of that, at the brink of all of this, when I was my absolute worst point, I managed to, and I could barely walk at this stage, but I managed to get down to the beach, just to bring it again full circle, to just literally 100 metres down the road. And it was about five in the morning. I hadn't slept all night. The sun had come up and I thought I'd go down to the beach. And I got down there and there was a guy who came up to me and he saw me and he just said, you're not right, are you? And I said, no. And he said, you need to go and see Tim Brown. I said, oh, God, 
who is this Tim Brown? You're the third person who's mentioned it. And I'd made a commitment to myself that um, in the absence of any other framework for how to live uh, any, any longer on this planet, if I hear a mention of something three times in a row, I must act. So I hauled my sad sack of bones and sort of decrepit immune system to Tim Brown's um, you know, uh, studio in Paddington and I sh- literally showed up and I went, all right, I've got a three strikes and I have to act rule. And so here I am. And <laughs> Make and, it good, Tim. Yeah, and get, I'll get Tim to confirm this story for you. But I presented <laughs> myself and just said, um, now listen, I have got a prejudice against you. <laughs> and he said. Hey, tell us what you really think. Yeah, he said. And then I said, I said, well, I just feel really judged and blah, blah, blah. I had all this stuff on my mm. shoulders, you know. And, and he said, he just laughed, you know, that chuckle of his. And he just said. Meditation will help with that. Mm. So I was very resistant, very resistant, but I knew I had to do it. So anyway, that was the meditation was a big part of my shift. It was being stripped bare and then left with nothing. I could no longer afford to live in Sydney, so I moved up to Byron Bay, and everything had been reduced down Mm. to the two suitcases that I Mm. mentioned before, and then the rest of my life started. So I had to heal myself. I had no money. I wrote a column for a newspaper. And it was about how to get well. I thought, kill a few birds with the one stone. And um, and so I, I survived off this one column a week that I wrote and I went on this massive adventure interviewing all kinds of people. And, of course, one week I was without a topic and so I wrote about how to quit sugar. And um, from there it just evolved and, you know, emerged and layers and e-books and then it became a book and then a digital platform. and You hit a nerve. Yeah, yeah. I was interviewing Dr. Wrong earlier today and he... um, (laughs) My dentist. (laughs) (laughs) And... um, Which is a nice segue from talking about sugar. Yeah, totally. This is it. And he said, I said I was coming to see him um, after him, and he said that, um, you know, what what, um, dentistry couldn't do in 60 years, you did in a couple of years. You know, in oh, terms of very yeah, no, he's a lovely guy, and and he very sincere he was, and um, and and we had a little quick chat about you know it's the it's the it's it's what resonates with people you know maybe hearing it from a guy who's going to make money out of you not a, well actually it's the other, other way around isn't it so if you eat if you don't stop eating sugar you're not going to go to the dentist mm. but it's from from a doctor guys like oh no you hurt me every three months I'm not going to listen to you and then. You struck a chord, you know, in your in 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 that in that very um, articulate way, and in also a very um, accessible way, you know. So all those years of working for News Limited and Cosmopolitan, totally. You had the you had the make, strategy. How to make the, quitting something that you are addicted to, you absolutely love. Life mm. is defined. Joy, birthday celebration is defined by how to make it sexy. Give it to the editor, former editor of Cosmopolitan. That's it, and you did it. So. Um, so, so where? Tell me where, because um, we can talk about your journey those eight years or up to this point. But I, I'm and and I'm not going to, because I want to talk to you. I want to ask about regenerative ag. Where did where mm. did that? Not that this is all about regenerative ag. This whole podcast thing, but it's uh, you know it sits in the middle of so many things. Mm. And we we connected around this, and Nico said, oh, "I reckon you should." Mm. And got us chatting. Where do you see it fitting into? Um, the world, as in, yeah. as in, the importance or significance of it, and also, 
um, I'm priming you up because I'm going to give you some jobs later. Yeah. Um, where do you see yourself fitting in into into that, if at all? I mean, I'm no pressure. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you've got something lined up, but I'll try to slot into it. <laughs> um, I look. I started to go down that rabbit hole, and I'm not sure exactly. It was Joel um, uh, Sultan. Yeah. yeah, I remember listening, watching a documentary with him in it. Um, uh, one of the very Inc. earliest ones, yeah. yeah. I think it might have even been something before Food Inc. Okay. Um, I think it might have been via Dr. Chris Cresser and okay. his sort of, yeah, and that sort of world. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I was aware of how off kilter we were with our food system um, and how much really basic logic we've man- we'd managed to disrupt So we've created what's called, you know, they're now referring to these things as hypernormal problems, problems that are so complex and systemic and, um, if I can use this word, clusterfucked by layers and layers of ridiculous logic, right, that we we then feel that the solution is going to have to be overly complex and multi-layered. What was that called again? It was... Hypernormal. Hypernormal. That's kind of... Hypernormal, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a hard, yeah, there's a bunch of words that have been emerging from various thinkers over the years um, in, in economics theory and a bunch of, you know, like black swans and all of that kind of thing um, to describe the complexity mm. um, that the world now faces. But, uh, and I think Zach Bush is probably one of the best for sort of peeling back the layers of the onion and showing that many roads <laughs> lead from that original kernel and that is the way that we produce our food. And that there's, there's a great deal of simplicity to what could be a fix to a number of problems, you know. So with the sugar journey, for instance, I would often drill things back and everybody wanted to get me on various aspects of the science and food. When I mean get you as in trying yeah, to oh, debunk it? You're, you're getting rid of an entire food group. Well, <laughs> fructose is not a food group. Um, <laughs> you know... Um, what about the pyramid? Yeah. The food pyramid. <laughs> sugar, is a, sugar is natural. Well, so is arsenic. <laughs> Are we meant to eat it in vast... Cyanide. Yeah, cyanide. Are we meant to eat like petroleum? <laughs> Are we meant to eat vast quantities of it? Probably not. Anyway, um, you know, so on and on it went. And um, But, you know, what I would drill it back to is, well, when you cut out sugar, you essentially cut out processed food because 80 to 90% of all processed food mm. contains added sugar. Mm. So when you cut out processed food, what's that leave you with? Oh, real food. And mm. what do you have to do then? Oh, you've got to learn to cook it. And so when you learn to cook it, you then get involved in the process of choosing good quality um, ingredients and you actually think about how you're going to store it in your fridge. You know, you start to think about that and then you start to notice, oh, okay, well, some foods are better off buying organic because they do last longer, which means I actually they become more efficient and cheaper in the long run. And then you work out a bunch of other things like, well, if you invest in an organic chicken as opposed to, you know, uh, free range, etc., etc. Well, you get more bang for your buck in the end because then you can boil the bones and make stock. And I, you, you go down this kind of rabbit hole and then if you're actually cooking, you've got a hobby, 
right? And mm. then you don't go to the mall and, I don't know, buy shit you don't need. <laughs> go skateboarding. Love skateboarders. No, Sorry. skateboard, yeah. go for that. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. Skateboard and cook. And but, cook. Um, and then you also go to – you start going to maybe the farmer's markets mm. or you start getting an interest in all that kind of thing. And so you have discussions with farmers. And so there's a whole – and you often find yourself walking out to kind of the supermarket. You start yeah. to get a little bit of a system in, in you know, in play and – and it's really quite simple. It really is. Um, so from quitting sugar, there's this wonderful kind of roll-on effect. Now, if you drill it down, drill it down, you then start to go, well, you start to look at the farming practices and you take an interest in it. It's not something that's out there that's really removed from your existence. And you start to realise um, all those arguments about how you've got to do this mass um, monocrop kind of farming mm. makes no sense. Mm. And you listen to people like Zach or Joel or yourself describing how we actually have enough food on the planet to feed the entire planet, despite what everybody thinks. Mm. And there are actually farming practices that can preserve our soil and actually also kill less animals, way less animals than we currently um say, for instance, even a current vegan diet kills. Um, And there's a lot of just sensible, like common sense stuff that really we only have to look to the way our probably our great-grandparents used to do things to get an indication of what a good, good, sustainable life on this planet could look like. So then, of course, the piece with my autoimmune disease, right? So you drill down the layers of that. And you start to hear information about how we got off track when we Mm. started um, sanitising the food chain and our existence. Now, I was really lucky. I grew up in the country. um, And so um, I've been able to heal from multiple um, uh, stress-related autoimmune diseases, I believe, and reverse a lot of the markers because of the way I live, which is in nature with Dirt in rocks and, and trees. And, and lived, do you think? Do you think those first, you know, formative when years, up, you were in the absolutely. sheep shed and the dirt and, yeah. and that sort of yeah. stuff? Yeah. I used to go and do my yeah. homework in the goat shed nice. in winter because it was so cold and I would just go and lie on the goats. and um, like Charlotte's it, Web. Yeah, very much. It was. And and when it was really cold, we'd bring the goats inside because we had a potbelly stove and it was way, it used to snow where we grew up and um, we we. The only heating was this potbelly stove and the goats. So, yeah. <laughs> Grab another goat, will you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mum, I'm cold. Grab a goat. Um, well, there's an expression about grabbing a dog. If you get cold, grab a dog. So it's not so far removed from yeah, the goat. Yeah, well, we also had, you know. So my mum, uh, and, and look, I'm really grateful for the fact that my mother was not a precious type like that, you mm. know. Um, she was always pulling things out of my brother's noses and ears that they'd stick up there and never really <laughs> thought much about it. So um, I, I sort of think, that yeah and and if you have a look i mean you don't have to have a look at the way you know you hear a little bit about oh all these allergies stem from the fact that the children don't have a robust immune system Mm. and um you start to go oh okay well that makes sense look at the way we're living you know all these people sanitizing everything um so yeah it just it fits logically into a sensible person's onion peeling journey if that makes sense well um that was a not so much a summary but that was a great way to put it mm. um, in a few metaphors <laughs> yeah no no that's great i mean it, it's um there's a great um 
quote I wheel out quite often from Chris uh, Christos Miliotis, and he said that you know that the the solution to the world's problems is is um, uh, what we choose to eat and what's beneath our feet. Mm. You know, the food on our plate and the soil on the ground. Yeah. You know, and the soil provides the immunity. You know, the biome, the Zach Bush show. You know, yep. and the food is obviously nutritious food as opposed to processed food, or even, you know, what we call well, what. I don't really call it anymore, but fresh food, it's like, yeah, it's fresh because it's not frozen, it's not processed, but it's, you know, what's on that stuff? How is it mm. grown? And, like, mm. it's scary some of the shit that they're putting on. Um, and I used to, as a farmer, I used to put stuff on cattle and sheep and on the soil and on the wheat, on wheat and, you know, everything I grew had a layer or some layers of chemical on it, which I thought was a really normal thing. Mm. So... Um, what well, else? it's all starting to play out as well. Mm. If, um, just last week, I think there's been a big class action in the US against Bauer, which bought Monsanto, yep. and yep. so that's all starting to play out. And so here in Australia, our government, our Minister for Agriculture or whatever came out, oh, well, no, no, there's no problems, no problems. <laughs> well, yes, except that, you know, a major oh, pharmaceutical yes. company with access to the best lawyers in the world mm. couldn't fight this case. That's right. It was watertight, you know. For um, them to decide, we get to settle this because it's going to go on forever, Yeah, is absolute admission of guilt. And, you know, it's a wonderful business model and I've spoken to many people about this. I'm no, no lone ranger here that, you know, there's this amazing business model which makes sick people. And mm. then there's another business model which dovetails into it which – Fixes and what do you know? The same people. company owns yeah. both of it's, them. Yeah. Really? No, mm. that's a coincidence. Yeah, and yet we we get worked up about all these other things, and sometimes some of the stuff. I mean, it's so simple, and I, you know, there's look, there's a lot of discussion about conspiracy theories and all that kind of going on around that moment, and I have my eyes wide open to it, like I'm really nervous about some of the stuff that people are coming out with but then there's also just common sense stuff like mm. like that mm. like it's i mean the it, company that's selling us the yeah. chemicals also has the supposed fix i mean um as you know and you'll you've probably got your notes there got something about <laughs> mental illness coming up soon oh, um of course i do <laughs> <laughs> um i do well i just you know I, let's I, do this let's I, go i, go I happen then. to I happen to write a book about it um <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's the same sort of thing. So anxiety as a disorder only entered the DSM, which is the main medical diagnostic tool for psychologists or psychiatrists in the US, Australia, and to a certain extent in the UK. So um, various, you know, ticks and behavioural traits were deemed disordered in 1980. Okay. Now, what do you know? It was six to 12 months after the first mm. anti-anxiety drug was invented. Mm. Now, do you think that's a coincidence? <sighs> no. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, and, you know, you could go, oh, conspiracy theory. It's, well, let's, just, let's just put it there as an interesting coincidence that anyone who out mm. there has anxiety and found them, finds themselves being given a pill, you, you might just want to start questioning it. And that's not to say that medication doesn't have its place. Um, however, we also have to be very alive to these things. And bipolar disorder had exactly the same um, sort of entry into our lexicon as a disorder. Um, it's been a very much a drug-first history for anxiety disorders and for many disorders out there. Well, I can say with um, experience and I don't know I've got permission to say this, but I'm going to anyway. Um, you know, my family, my brother has had been um, uh, ill for some time 
and I'm and medicated for many, you know, couple of decades, um, and and uh, and and yeah, not in the world, not functioning in the world, mm-hmm. and he, you know. All, all, all credit to him and the, the courage that it took to do this. He took himself off medication, and I saw him yesterday, and I haven't seen him as 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 well in twenty three years. Yeah, and it's you know, there's a whole lot of stuff in that that I don't don't need to go into. There is. But in and terms of yeah. just the there's the attitude of the people prescribing that. There's the um, the helplessness of the patient and the family who are. Often viewed as you know ignorant and oh you're not a doctor you're not even a scientist or you know, whatever mm. their justification is and we know best and it's like you know it's hard it's a hard place to sit when there's there's a life in the balance you know well, who do you believe do you go with your gut do you go with your head do you look at the science um, it's a really it is a really tricky one tricky and I've one. had to obviously be very careful because I you know when I write a book about this kind of stuff about the role of medication. I more just try to make people aware of where the vested interests lie and so that they can make the choice, um, you know, with, with their eyes wide open. But one thing I would say to that is that also for anyone who is in that position, and look, there's very few people that have been touched by that very tricky decision, medicate or not medicate, is this a disorder or is this a sane person's reaction to an insane world? Um, (laughs) And we've got to bear all of that in mind and all of it can be true. All of it can be appropriate. Um, we can take medication and we can also be aware that life has put us in a position where it is very, very difficult to navigate um, a sane path yeah. at times. And, you know, I think this plays out um, particularly um, evidently with ADHD and those kinds of disorders amongst children. And I recently have been exposed to a child um, who has been diagnosed with this and put on medication and she doesn't want to take it. It makes her feel unwell and whatever, whatever. There's a whole bunch of things that have led her to that diagnosis and this position that she's in. But what I see is a world where we are so busy and this is no one's fault We are all part of a system and here we are, we arrive as poor, vulnerable humans trying to do our best, but we live in a world that is so busy, in a world that has so so many expectations. The neoliberal system has put us into this system and so you have children who are children and they have energy to burn and they have so many rules and restrictions. They are inside creatures. They are their um, attention completely fragmented their parents attention is equally fragmented Mm. and that's something that i look into in this book that is about to come out um there's this a, a condition called continuous partial attention and children are suffering that from their parents continuous who, partial attention so with parents who are in a state of sort continuous of. partial attention i.e they're on their phones mm. What that means is that children are missing out on really important cues. Mm. Children develop uh, psychologically but also at a sort of an intellectual level through attention from their parents. Mm. So getting cues back from their parents Mm. where they behave, they do something, their parents respond with eye contact. Now, they're not getting this. and In fact, studies have shown what kind of effect that's having on children around the world and it's mammoth. Mm. It's the effect of parents... 
um, continual partial attention is bigger than children's own engagement with iPads and iPhone and technology. So, wow. so you've got these kids who are having to exist, try to be sane in an insane world. With parents who aren't present. Yeah, and that's only one part of the puzzle. Mm. And it's not the parents' fault because we're all in it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, medication, these kids are put on medication, which then creates a whole host of other problems. You know, I went on the Googles and had a look at the side effects of these medications and it causes gut issues. Mm. And these, you know, this particular child in my life, she says that it just makes her feel sick. sick. You know, and she doesn't. She finds it very difficult to eat at regular times, and of course, that you, that then leads to a range of cascading issues. So, there is no quick fix, but I think there's ways that we can drill things down to quite simple truisms, and they're not all-encompassing blanket solutions, but they actually can be a path through. And what they Hit can us do. With a few. Well, for instance, the sugar thing. You know, you take sugar out, and I and I say this as somebody who now makes absolutely no money from encouraging people to eat not eat sugar because all my profits from that's part of what I do goes that to charity. Was a, a wonderful thing. Um, so, you know, it sort of gives me an ability to promote the notion of not eating sugar um, <laughs> <laughs> with impunity. You know, vested interest right there. That's take right. a leaf out of Sarah's book. Yeah, that's right. It gets. Some, you people, yeah. not your listeners, but some of the people we've been yeah. talking about. Yeah, so, um, so you know, you do that mm. and it's actually a really clean, streamlined way to get rid of junk food, right? Yeah. So you cut out all processed food by just quitting sugar. And then what have you got left? Oh, you've got to eat whole food, mm. meat, vegetables, um, good quality fats, etc., etc. So it, it really does kind of just streamline you into it. So there's a few going back to basics, going back to the way our great-grandparents used to live. Mm. Some of those things are actually, I think, some of the sanest, surest ways. Simple. So the other one, the yeah. other one, yeah. this is something that I absolutely live by, is um, ride a bike. Mm. Get rid of your car. Mm. So do you want to knock the sustainability issues, the ethical issues, um, and also – the exercise factors on the head, do it in one by getting rid of your car. So I haven't owned a car in many, many years now. And you ride a bike, you keep fit. I mean, I've got friends, we all know these people, you might be one of these people listening, (laughs) um, who drives to the gym, gets on an exercise bike for an hour. And then does the... And then drives home, has a shower, drives to the office. And having like, paid 38 bucks a and I'm like, day for I had this discussion at a forum in Melbourne once on Flow, ironically enough, yeah. and I made this example and the MC, a really great woman, she said, oh, my God, I do that. And I said, well, why don't you <laughs> just ride your bike to work and get it all done in one yeah, hit, yeah. you know, in a, in, in a third of the time? Um, and then, of course, if you've got to go to the post office on the way there, if you've got to go to an after work, you know, it's all just flowy. Mm. And often, given the traffic in Sydney, for example, getting there by bike is often... Anything under noise. 10 kilometres, it's more efficient by bike. And mm. then you can also get on a train part of the way. Mm. It's wonderful. It's actually so, quite, just, to, mm. just to, on that one very quickly, is actually quite a big um, movement or, or tribe of bike riders, country farming, bike riding, oh. men and women out there. It's I haven't joined it yet. I'm not sure how to, I'd go down and like Lycra. But the good news is they do it. You know, they get out there and they just – and they're these big burly farmers and they're on their little pushies. Yeah. And, you know, they meet for coffee and it's just a, the same thing as here. They're just – Yeah, there's a lot boys, of stuff you, know? you can do, socialising errands yeah. and everything by walking or, or riding. Mm. So there's that. And then the other thing, of course, is just um, don't go to the shops. So I say that. 
because people often say, how do you be a minimalist? And I'm like, just don't go to the don't shops. Don't get tempted or, yeah. So um, I have a hashtag on, on, my, on my socials, hike, don't shop. Mm. So whatever you're hiking, hiking takes a good half a day, right? You take your friends, your kids, whoever it might be, and you head out on a really great hike. Um, and it just basically means you don't get to a shopping mall. And shopping begets shopping, right? So you go for a vegetable paring knife. And you end up going, oh, I might as well get some more towels and I might as well get this while I'm there. <laughs> and you just come home with a whole heap of stuff that really you don't need. Mm. So That's wrapped in plastic. Wrapped in plastic, mm. et cetera, you know. And I, I just – I find that I will just put off going to the shops. Mm. Like, so I think this time around it's been 12 months, but I'll do 15 months. I'll do then another nine months where I literally don't go to the shops aside uh, from uh, toilet paper. Yeah. Frozen peas. And for what the food, food. what are the food? So farmers markets, you Farmers markets, I go Bondi mm. markets. Wherever I've lived, there's always been farmers markets. Maybe it's just I live in particularly bourgeois um, suburbs, enclaves. Um, however, even Which is interesting, like shouldn't that be everywhere? Shouldn't it just be like normal? More and more it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, nice. I travel a lot around country towns. I go to a lot of regional areas just with my hiking and things yeah. like that. And also I try to travel there with work. I try to focus or steer my work energies to more regional areas because I, I just love being in regional areas. And, um, yeah, there generally is a farmer's market. They're popping up everywhere now. Yeah. So, um and then I – there's bulk food stores. So I buy all of my grains, um, you know, things like coconut, um, olive oil, coconut oil, tamari, whatever it might be, I buy it in bulk and I take my own containers. So I even take my own jars. I take reuse even the paper bags um, and I'll reuse them four or five times, you know, um, rather than get a new one there. I take Yeah, as I say, I take my own jars. So – You were telling me the other day – I can't remember what exactly what it was. You, you're at a restaurant or something and someone didn't finish their dinner oh, yeah. and you said, can I take that home? And you took it home and turned it into a salad or something. What was I it? do or it all the time. chicken bones or something. Oh, yeah, what I've taken it? fish carcasses. I've taken <laughs> people, strangers' bones. Butter <laughs> is the big one. So butter is a premium product. Totally. And a lot of restaurants and cafes have really good quality butter, mm. right? The stuff that, you know, don't come cheap. Mm. And so and people don't eat it all. So I'll just take it off people's plates <laughs> and it's often in really lovely foil you know yep. so i take it home put it straight into the fridge and then i eat it and then the butter um foils mm. i use for greasing things the tins the cake tins exactly i haven't bought butter in years <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually serious i'm going to i'm speaking with a um just on butter a good mate of mine chris eggett uh on saturday at war hope and he is one of two i think norco organic um, dairy guys, he yeah. is a, he's an absolute classic. So he won't be pleased to hear no, he won't. buying butter. But wait, maybe he ethically will be happy that I'm encouraging that I'd like Not to waste. see everybody eat it. Yeah. Um, I don't think – I think life is just made a hell of a lot better with a lot of butter, you know. Butter, I mean, butter doesn't go – it's just it's – just, uh, Bread for me is a vehicle for butter. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, just <laughs> yeah. You, you spread you sort of nice spreading bread on your on your yeah. That's your right. Swag on my butter. butter. Tell me, um, Sarah, you have appeared on. I want to get to your books because um, there are a number of them. And before we do that, I just want to jump into you did a bit of TV stuff in your um, in your 30s. life thirties. Mm -hmm. And would you do TV again? Um. I have no – I've never had a burning desire to have my mug on television. It's not something I ever sort of grew up wanting to do. This, this will be on TV. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, I didn't want it, but... You didn't um, know. Didn't yeah. you read the fine print on that? Yeah, so, um, no, would I ever do television again? It's not my preferred medium. However, and I'm also pretty old these days. No, um, stop it. I am. There's no getting around that. But um, I... If I, I've said this before, I would do television if it was, if I deemed it the most effective way to get a message I care about mm-hmm. across to the most amount of people. And that's my dictum for everything I do now. Um, there's been a number of opportunities and business ideas and things to do and be involved in that have crossed, you know, my, my desk this very desk that we're sitting yeah, at totally. um, over the last couple of years, um, particularly since I gave away all of that money and that was another turning point for me. Um, just that, re- and that, That's the I Quit Sugar enterprise, as it were. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I sold off all the assets and I continue to sell off books and, um, and, and give the money to charity projects, which I get engaged in, which is far more rewarding than making money mm. and going to a shopping mall and spending it on the shit you don't need. <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? Mm. How do you want get to spend that loop. this mortal, you know, your time in this mortal coil? So, um, yeah, television to me, I mean, I... There's very few things that I'm engaged in that I don't love doing. There's mm. always some wonderful challenge or there's people that you meet or whatever. Um, so television doesn't – it's not something I'd say never to, but it needs to be the most effective medium for, for that for – that whatever that moment or that message might be. And, um, yeah, so it's a case-by-case. Case. So – I don't know. Have you got a TV show lined up or something? <laughs> <laughs> I could have. I'm not telling. It's a secret. Um so let's get to the books because they have been your um, in the last. Uh, um, first, we make the beast beautiful. When it that came out in twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen, seventeen. Yeah, so that, that that's you know, three years ago, and you've got one that's sort of rolling uh, out this year. Mm. Um, let's August thirtieth. What, what were they? Why did you? Um, why did you write them? Yeah, so first we made The Beast Beautiful, um, again, like everything I've done has emerged. So it was actually something I was writing. You know how I said I went up to Byron? Yeah. You go to Byron and you go and live in a in an army shed in the middle of a forest and you go, right, I'm going to write my 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 memoirs. memoirs yeah. Yes. And so I set off to write this book. And, and how many years ago is this, so just to get the time frame? Two th- that would have been 2010. Okay, so a number of years before it actually came out. Yeah, yeah. So in effect, it actually did take me seven years. Mm. Um, I think it was 2009 I first started sort of researching it and so on. And it went terribly and I just didn't have a voice and I didn't – I hadn't arrived. I hadn't arrived philosophically with anything that resembled a polemic that I could share with the world. So – and it was, you know, it was just very unconvincing. I wrote 60,000 words and tossed the lot and – and decided to not eat sugar and the I Quit Sugar books emerged instead, mm-hmm. which was wonderful. Um, and then as, um, as I was working through the business and it was successful, I, I, I started to question things and I got that itch again about what matters and I started, I thought I'll go back to that anxiety dialogue and I actually felt very solid. I, I, I just reached a level of maturity. I just got older, you know. And were you familiar, I mean, you I understand that you were familiar with that dialogue because that, that had been yeah, part of your been life. My, yeah. So I was diagnosed with anxiety the first time in, in when I think I was when I was thirteen, twelve or thirteen, and then I uh, was diagnosed with 
a bunch of things. Um, I was put on the equivalent, well, Prozac at 18 and then uh, for obsessive compulsive disorder. Then I was diagnosed with manic depression as it was called back then when I was 21 mm. and I was medicated with a bunch of anti-epileptics and antipsychotics until I was 28, 29 then I came off the medication and, um, and of course, I had various autoimmune diseases that are way, way connected. Complicated by the medication? No, no, connected to bipolar. Okay. So Hashimoto's and bipolar. I also had Graves' disease. Um, and so and then various times throughout my life it would rear back up again. I'd have to go and get medicated, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to this day I still have to read the signs I modulate um, through diet, exercise, meditation. What do you mean well, I describe it like carrying a shallow bowl of water around for the rest of your life when you've got a when you've got a you know I guess a serious anxiety disorder, and it's you've just got to keep it in balance, right? So you've just got to be conscious steady, and sensitive. Of, steady, yeah, okay. steady, steady. Yep. It is a responsibility, and I find that actually a very enlivening way to see it. It's a responsibility to myself, to my time on on this planet because I I have come very close at times to ending my life and that's part of the disease. So I don't think I'm honouring the gift of life mm. by 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 getting myself so wobbly that I that I make that decision. Um, and also to others. You know, um, I want to be of service. I want to have relationship with others. And when I when I wobble, it makes it very difficult for the world around me to relate to me. So it and I want to be productive. I want to leave a legacy. So I and and my bipolar, as it is now called, um, enables incredible amount of productivity and creativity, and enables incredible ability to connect mm. spiritually. It opens up. Um, consciousness, I believe, in many ways, as long as I modulate. So I do see that as a responsibility, and it's 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 a it's a burden, but it's a wonderful burden to to bear, I suppose. So I do that, but then at times I I don't manage it well. I get off kilter, and and it gets bigger than me, and um, I have to go and seek help. And Who calls you out on that when that happens? Um, or not you don't have to name names, but no. are you called out? Is there, is there There are people in my life who've done it yeah. and they've not necessarily been close friends. They've been people mm. who have been acquaintances, but they've been brave enough to approach me. Or they'll even they'll just be signals and I'll go, All right, it's time. Um, but then there's other I've got a network of, you know, Nico and Tim I would include mm. in close friends who know when I'm not right. Um and I think just, you know, I say this in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, that sometimes the only salve to anxiety is sheer years on the planet, you know, just doing the hard yards the and learning, yeah. doing the work, learning and getting maturity to understand the bigger picture behind it all. So, so for me, as I get older, I, I know how to look after myself better mm. and know when I need to get help. But, um, you know, I... I greeted you at the door today, or you greeted me at my door. <laughs> I welcomed you to your, yeah, your house. Yeah. Um, um, basically being really honest, you know, I've, I've not been great the last few weeks mm. and I've wobbled like a mad woman and, um, you know, I have ways of coping. And, and um, so, yes, back to your original question, um, 
I, I sort of had to go on this investigation anyway because I was fed up with the storyline that I'd been trapped in. So I wanted to find a new – I wanted to reframe my anxiety through a different lens, is a that purposeful by, lens. Is that by purging and then – Recollecting thoughts, you know, like that. Is that I, I haven't written a book, so I don't know what sort of a no, sort of it's the creative not, not as direct as that. It's very meandering. Yeah, um, yeah. I just, I mean, the way I write my books is, um, you know, and I've never known how to do anything in my life. I've just given it a stab and seen if it works. I suck it and see. But I, I go on the journey with the reader, so I write almost in real time. So I try this, I fail, I try this, I don't. Then go and interview His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Then I go and, you know, and then I go, actually, that wasn't right. And then I do this. And then I look into the science and things. And then I go, actually, I think it's time to recircle back around to a spiritual perspective. And so it's a real journey for the reader. It's a journey. And then I do try to bring it together into an arc of sorts Mm. so that we arrive somewhere, um, you know, sort of. So we arrive mm. somewhere, you know. Together. Do you know where that is when you when you sit down to write a book? Do you know where the end is? No, no. I don't. But by about three quarters of the way through, I do. Mm. I don't know how I'm going to get there though, and that's why the last quarter matters. And then I go back and I layer, mm. I layer, I layer. So I don't just write from the beginning to the end, and then that's it. I then go back and I do a fair bit of moving around, and just so that it's succinct and reflects how the journey might work best for somebody else. Yeah. Cool. You fashion it sort of for the... Yeah. Do as I say and write, not as I did, is kind of what I bring, <laughs> to, the, to, bring to the party. And this latest book, which is called This One Wild and Precious Life, is a continuation of that journey in First We Make the Beast Beautiful. So that was an inward journey to better understand um, the purposefulness through a spiritual and philosophical and scientific lens of anxiety Mm. beyond the medical model. And then I take the journey back out because the world was calling me outwards, out beyond my own internal journey, out to the world to save it, basically. Your contribution. But I think the world's calling all of us out. Mm. And, um, And that's where James Hollis's notion of... Life, you know, our soul is making an appointment for us with life, and that's what's going on right now. Yeah. And the book, um, which is, is coming out, is um, this year. Is um, how would you best describe in terms of someone? Not that you're trying to do a spiel, but just to. I mean, I, I want our listeners to get a sense of what to look forward to. Um, yeah. So it's sort of. Um, there's a lot going on. And when I first wrote, wrote it, it was really trying to navigate the climate crisis, mm. um, which to me was the biggest thing that we could fathom, and it still is. But then, of course, co- the bushfires, then COVID, and then, of course, the Black Lives Matters protests happened before I could press go on the, to the printer. Yeah, send. Um, <laughs> was, that a good, was, this, is that, was that a good thing? Is that, oh, my God. It, 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 it was a curse, but then also um, it probably reinforced my message. You know, and so by the time it comes out, oh, look, God knows. I've almost lost sight of it, to be honest, but that always happens at this stage. I literally sent the last um, race kind of update bit um, an hour before Charlie arrived, hence (laughs) going for a swim in the ocean to recalibrate, hence wet hair. Yeah. So, um, so yes, I. It wasn't a good thing. Yes and no, but it's been really, really challenging. So to go back to what's the book about? The book. Hopefully, well, the book provides what I believe is a path 
a hopeful path forward through this clusterfuck. And it's not necessarily a salve and it's it's brings us back to life. So it's a path that brings us back to our nature, back to nature, mm. back to what matters. And I, I argue that it's a disconnection from life, from from all of that that has led us to where we are today. So it's a, a path to reconnection. But the way I do that, because it's such an overwhelming behemoth to mm. navigate, and I pull apart the neoliberal model, I, I use Nietzsche to break things down, I, I mean, I go through everything. Um, and then I, but I do it by hiking around the world. So as, I, as the sort of the context or the, the sort of the... The, the, na- the narrative yeah. thread. Mm. And um, so I follow in the footsteps of Nietzsche mm. where he, um, he wrote most of his seminal works that broke down um, sort of neoliberal thinking at the, at the, in the dawn of the industrial era. Where he, when he, made where he followed in his footsteps, literally. Literally the hikes that he used to do to keep himself where sane. Where was he doing that? Um, Where did you do that as well? Yeah, in a near <laughs> in a little town called Sils Maria in Switzerland. So beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and then um, but coincidentally, I was actually there in the footsteps of Heidi. Do you remember that book, Heidi? It's this. It was turned into a Disney no. movie starring oh, yeah, I've, I've, Shirley Temple. Okay. Um, yeah. But it was a book that was the first real non-picture book that I got given as a kid, and I still got, I've got it on my bookshelf in there. <laughs> um, Dad wrote my name in it and covered it in plastic, you know. As and he used to do. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. And uh, Dad used to do all of that sort of stuff for us. And um, he and so this book was. I was fascinated by it. Right. She grew up on goat's milk. And so I just felt this affinity. So I went off to this town, to, you know, to go to what's literally called Heidedorf in mm. commemoration. But it was written in exactly the same era as Nietzsche was writing his stuff by a woman, um, Joanne Spree, who was also disenchanted by industrialisation and capitalism. So she writes a book about a little child who gets sick from capitalism and gets shipped out to the mountains of Switzerland to frolic and be free. And so find themselves again back to nature. So that's one of the things that I explore. But then I also I go and hike um, where Wordsworth um, and he, Williams Wordsworth and his sister used to hike. But I join my favourite poet David White, who's an Irish, beautiful Irish poet, um, and I hike with him and his wife in the footsteps of Wordsworth. And that was in Ireland. Where that was, was that? in the Lake District. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember. But that was only like two years ago, a year and a half yeah. ago or something. I remember in your social media. There. Yeah. Yeah, it was cold. Yes, least. I got very unwell. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, you would have seen that video. And I actually went blue and they had, I had to be helped down the mountain. Wow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, and I, you know, I go to Sierra Nevada, I go out to the desert, I do a bunch of different hikes. Mm. And so part of it is, you know, my sort of modus operandi hike and you don't shop hike you reconnect with nature when you reconnect with nature you're motivated to, and you love it you're motivated to save what you love so these are some mm. of the, 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 the threads through the book so there's and there's clearly no one you know silver bullet for any of this but, but having the it's a way that's fantastic it's yeah a way. It's, a, it's a like and it's and it's you know i, I it's not dissimilar to, given that there are lots of tools and some suit more than others, and but there's some principles involved. It's a bit like, and I, I, I take things back to regenerative ag for a reason that 
um, as a farmer, we have the tools in our toolbox we can use and we use ones at different times and the tools in the hands of an ignorant person can be really dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, certainly in a farming sense. And, um, but I think that's, that's – and, and, and it comes down to choice, doesn't it? At every moment mm-hmm. we have a choice, you know, is that there's that instance between, yeah. you know, action and reaction where we can, you know, and our decisions are going to be based on – our past, yeah, you know, and Viktor Frankl, you know, he said that you know, I, I'm not, I'm going to quote him badly, but it was between every moment and the outcome, you have a choice, the choice, and that's yeah. your reaction. You know, there's a primitive response, which often is we can't control. You know, it's like bang, we do this, and then there's that gap just before we our next action and that's the choice and that's you know? freedom that's and that's freedom. what victor frankel Frank, victor frankel wrote this book or nine days after getting out being freed from auschwitz where he was mm. spent four years doing hard labor and it's called man's, man's search for meaning for meaning mm. yeah and it's a lot about freedom and that's his definition it's your choice to decide how you're going to react and this came up and um i can't remember was it yesterday's podcast with tommy but and and his his scenario was he was um, he was being tortured and his 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 uh, you know what he got and he was he was a he was a psychiatrist wasn't he already he he had some pretty found you know good foundational understanding mm. of the way the mind mm. works and and and, and behaviours and so on and it was um, he's a teacher isn't he I might have, yeah a teacher yeah. but I mean oh, teachers mm. know all about human mm. behaviour and he realised that yeah there was that his tormentors, there's one thing that they could not take from him, is mm. his freedom of choice. Yeah. You know, I can react this way or that way to what's happening to me now. Yeah, which links back into what we were saying before. Some of the simplest truisms are our way forward. Mm. Quitting sugar. Let's not make Spending it less. Regenerative farming. Totally. You know, and, and, and freedom being a choice to as to how to react. Mm. Well, thank you for putting... Um, the book together, which we are very much looking forward well, to reading. Reserve your judgment till you've read it, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else have I got here? What's um? What's I giving can't you? Read your writing, so I, I know my mum says it's like um, I use a fountain pen anyway, so that's like in code. And mum says it looks like a spider's jumped in an inkwell and run across the page. <laughs> so, what's giving you joy right now? Not like necessarily this very second, but in your life, what Which is... Which would be, have to be talking with you, Charlie. <laughs> Thank you. What's well, bringing me joy? Next question. I love that, uh, no, I love that question. I love that question because it's something that I've really had to delve deep into and I think some people listening might relate to this because I am feeling uh, very overwhelmed, very scared about what's happening in the world and when you, you can't unsee the stuff. Once mm. you've actually looked into the climate science, once you start to... Um, really absorb some of the nuanced debates around all of this and you, you, you can't unlearn it, you can't unsee can't it. The truth thing. is not pretty. So how am I going to choose to live the remaining 45 years on this planet mm. meaningfully because really I'm going to have to find a way and so I've been trying to think about really carefully about what brings me joy, joy in a way that's not destructive, joy in a way that's productive and um, can actually, again, equip me to be of most service and that would be being in nature. If I, it's, my, it's my kind of main line to meaning and joy is just being in it. I don't have to do anything. You know, so I've never been on a hike that I haven't loved and I haven't come back from. 
um, rejuvenated and feeling clear in the head and the heart. And ditto with I've never jumped in the ocean and got out and gone, well, that was a waste Wish of time. Wish I didn't do that. Yeah. yeah. So um, I do that regularly. So literally, as you know, I had 15 minutes to spare. I went across the road. I submerged and sort of calculated what might be 10 minutes before I sprinted back. And it's just um, that brings me joy. Um, the other thing that brings me joy, um, I've started fostering. And yeah, cool. Yeah, so there's a little girl in my life and um, it's hard, but I get to the end of, at the moment it's four days, a fortnight, and the school holidays. Block, a block so it's four mm. days in a, in a row. Yeah. Block, yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. It's challenging. It's, um, but I kind of, she leaves, and then that day I just realise I feel really good. I just feel good. I feel light, you know, and I feel, yeah, I feel just clear. And um, so that brings me joy. So do my why nieces did you and my do, nephews. Why did you do that? Why did you decide, of all the things that you could do in your time, you know, being as busy as you are, because that intimacy piece um, and I missed the boat on motherhood for myself, which was has brought me great grief and um, it's a grief that will never leave me. And um, it's it, it, I, I actually write about this. It's another thread in this next book mm-hmm. um, because it sort of pieces into existence and joy and what matters and, and all of that. Um, and also... <laughs> I found out that there are 40,000 foster kids in Australia, half of whom are Aboriginal, mm-hmm. and there's only 3,500 foster parents. So you Sorry, can, what was that? What was that? 40,000 and... Th- half th- are Aboriginal. Yeah. And, and 3,500 3, foster parents. So you do the sums. Oh, yeah. And then you ask, where are all these kids? And you know where they are? In motel rooms scattered across Australia on their own. So it's... Um, and once you start to engage in all of this, again, you can't unsee it, you can't unlearn it, you can't block it out. How, how, how does that work? I mean, because that's fascinating. And how does that – I mean, where is your foster um, child when – well, not exactly the rest of where, the time. but there's, they're at another – She is currently – and, you know, I've uh, she's currently with a second cousin of her mother's, but it's not a – it's not a stable situation. So for her. the ten days of the fortnight there, four days here. Yeah. Yeah. But um, we don't. Yeah, there's going to have to be changes there. Do you see? She's been in the care system since she was one, and she's been to seven schools. At what age? Ten? No. She's uh, just turned nine. Nine. Do you see a change? I mean, this fascinates me. But you know, in those four days, do you see? You know, like. It, in some ways, it, it may not be dissimilar to broken families where one week's with dad and one with mum or there's some sort of a thing. You know, oh, Often in those situations, children turn up to one parent and depending oh, on the dynamics, yeah. they're like ratty and well, then she's got, by day she's four got, they're okay and then they've got to go back. She's got multiple parenting that has kind of contributed to her small life. Mm. You know, and so she has to absorb. Look, it's there's no even there's no playbook, no. Uh, I just witness what she, how she responds to things, and I'm in awe. Mm. She survives. Mm. That's what she does. Everything goes yeah. through the survival lens, and so you watch her behaviour, and you can't be going, "Oh, a child's not meant to behave like that." I just go, "Right, she is currently doing what she needs to get her needs met." Doing her best. 
Mm. And I go, full props to her. You can't ask anyone any more than that, can you? No. And I tell you what, I'm hats off to her. Like, I tell her constantly. Does she teach you stuff? Oh, God, yeah. What like? Oh, it's not so much. Oh, she she teaches me um, mostly about the worst aspects of myself. Yeah. My assumptions, my generalisations, my impatience. Um, yeah, yeah. Does, does, um, is that verbally? Does she call you out or you just re- there's a reflection? There's a little of bit of calling out. Remember, she's only young, mm. but there's, she's, she's not stupid. She's mm. smart. She calls mm. me out. We have a little thing where if she's honest, I'll, you know, we'll, we're, we're to be honest with each other. So every now and then she'll go, hey, she calls me Arnie. Arnie, um, you know how you said I've got to be honest with you? Well, mm. I think blah, blah, blah. Of course, when she says that, I have to honour, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because through that lens, that, you know, innocent lens, there's there's clarity, isn't there? But they're seeing stuff as it is, you know. The other thing is, is that it's quite interesting. Children need boundaries and a child who has been, um, you know, sort of, let loose. No boundaries. No boundaries. She really needs boundaries. And when I give her boundaries, she responds really well. Mm. And um, it's all good. We make deals and she gets it and she and life Choice. life seems fair. Yeah. And ultimate freedom is being bound, right? Yep. To be rendered choiceless, to use a Tim Brownism is the ultimate freedom. And um, but flip side is she also binds me mm. because all of a sudden my I can go anywhere, I can go to a yoga class whenever I want to, blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden it's like I can't do that. And I'm a single parent when mm. I'm with her, mm. you know what I mean? Plus the restrictions are, you know, it's I can't just fob her off to neighbours because there's protocols when you're a foster parent, you know. So, yeah, it's... Um, so Good that, on you for doing that. That's, that's, um, that's wonderful. Yeah, well, the life she, that she will live. We we'll have to see where be, it goes. We we'll have to see where it goes. It's early days with her and I, but it's you know she's. Um, I think she'll be sticking around. Yeah. I have a a quote, and I bang on about it quite often, but it's one I think about every day. Is um, uh, our job as parents, foster parents, mm-hmm. uh, is to prepare our children to leave us. Yeah. You know, and that that might be sixteen, it might be eighteen. You know, generally around there, mm. and if they're not ready and prepared for the world, it's our fault, Yeah, you know, yeah. and we have that responsibility. And that simple, mm. simple yeah. premise, it's like, mm, okay, if that's, the, if that's my reference point, might have to do some work. Get you know? your own ego out of the way. That's it. And there's a time around that, mm. you know, and there's no excuse for access to information, activity, um, Overall change, if necessary, any of those things. I just think yeah. there's also, I think, one of the big rods for that people create, parents create for their backs. And I say this as an observer of many friends who've, you know, had all kinds of different children and have different types of parenting styles. But is this idea? I think there's this kind of um, sense of guilt and whatever that parents feel, and they feel that they've got to be liked by their children. They want to be loved by their children. They want to be mm. liked by their children. Our parents didn't need that. Mm. They didn't see that that was part of what they had to get from their children. Um, you know, and there's this sense that children, um, that parents want to get that from a child. And that's part of, you know, we've got to, 
I sort of feel that if we go by your edict, that very going back to a simple edict, no, it's the other way around. You prepare, you have a job, and that is mm-hmm. to prepare the child to leave you. And whatever you get, if you muddy that with thinking that they've got, you've got to be liked and everything, you're not doing your job. You know, totally. And you know, tough love is a wonderful thing. You know, it's it's about and boundaries. Uh, totally boundaries, and there's so much wonderful stuff about this. And, anyway, I shouldn't. Know, I shouldn't actually. I've got to be very careful um, because I'm. You know, I haven't been a parent for that long, but I think there. It's an interesting conversation that we need to be having as a society totally. because a lot of parents do feel alone in that aspect of the debate. But what you're doing is something that not many people do and that your, your, in, your experience with that is absolutely valid. So don't ever excuse yourself for well, putting, saying it as you f- feel it to be. That's, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Don't do that, okay? I'm telling you. <laughs> um, so... There was something about oh Ken Robinson. Do you know you ever heard of Ken Robinson? No. You would love him. He um, he's one of the most popular TED talks. That's mm, I know that's yeah. banded around everywhere, but it's he's got two, and it was the first one. And I can't remember what he's what his um, he's a, he's just a bloody clever bloke. He's, yeah. a, he's a pom and lovely guy. He's written a couple of books, um, and this story. Uh, I'm going to spoiler alert. But in, yeah. this, in the in the TED talk, he talks about we were talking about it before about ADHD and and sort of children not fitting in and that sort of thing. And yeah. he told a story about some um, I don't I think they were his clients, but anyway. So he he suggested that's right. He suggested that these people having trouble with their child go to um, uh, go to a, it was I was him was it him I'm bugging the story up now I can't remember him or, or a, co- a colleague no 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 it'll be in the notes yeah for sure <laughs> but he there was a child that was having so called problems in the world mm-hmm. and the parents didn't know what to do and they went to his guy and 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 uh, and they were talking about it and this kid was sitting there and you know looked really normally going no it, this this kid's just out of control and we can't you know it just doesn't think and not learning and it's just mm-hmm. anyway he said oh come outside and we went outside. And I left the child in the in the room, and there's a window, and he just had some some music playing, and he waited five minutes, and he said to the parents, "Come over here and have a look." And they looked, and the child was dancing around, and he said, "Your pro- your child doesn't have a problem; she's a dancer." Yeah, right. That's her thing. And then from then they went, "Oh my God, that's it!" Because she couldn't sit still in class. You know, so that her resonance, her her her, her mm-hmm. being was around. About music and play and 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 don't and you like that idea of exiting the room? Like there's so many symbolic stand gestures. Back. Stand back from mm. the scenario, then look at it through a different window. Totally. You know, and like let the, and and the child was in its its natural state and, and bound within a room. Totally, yeah. Where there was one thing that she had to concentrate on that yep. was happened to be something that Simple. resonated mm. literally, and then she went on to be the. Um, I'm not sure what you call it, the head ballerina or whatever of the Royal Ballet or something. Like a fascinating story. And it was just because this guy acknowledged and understood that mm. we just need to accept them as they are and not push them into you've got to sit down in class yep. for eight hours a day and learn this and do your maths and whatever else. It's like let them be. And in the world of Steiner, we say in the first seven years of their lives, you love this, it's about being in nature and being one yeah. with nature, one with yourself and you are part of nature so it's your relationship, it's eating the, sh- the bloody sheep shit, it's mm-hmm. understanding 
Doing your homework. Listening on the goats. to the owls, <laughs> hugging trees. What was that? Doing your homework, sitting on goats. Totally, absolutely, mm. talking to the spiders. You know, yeah. and that's really important stuff. And if once we have a a relationship in those years with nature and ourselves as as part of nature, we can handle anything. Yeah. You know, we yeah. can. You'll have our ups and downs, but that's the foundation of man. And this is a word that I explore in the book: is um, fending. Because in nature you have to fend and you have to you have to adapt and mould in and around the rocks. You've got to find ways to crawl up and mm. over. You've got to find a fix for something, you know. You sort of – and as kids that's what we used to do. We'd mm. find, oh, we need to tie these two sticks together. We'll use some, <laughs> you know, some, some straw or whatever. And so fending is something that it really does tap us back into source – it's creative. It's it's movement, natural movement of the body, and it, it 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 creates a certain type of completeness, a satisfaction. And you know, I cite a bunch of studies to back that up. Um, but yeah, it's adaptive. Mm. Mm. Again, back to regenerative ag. It's not about adoption of practices and going prescriptive industrial farming. Spray it then, mm. do it now. It's adapting practices to your business, your headspace, your landscape, whatever it is, the season, being flexible, um, focusing on what And that's can. fun. It's creative. Totally. It's, it's fending. It's yep. being agile. It's, it's uh, you know, I think that's, that's – it's about freedom. It's treading the thin line between chaos and order. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> all all the theories. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sarah, you know what? We have banged on for. I've got no some view time. either now. We've just got lights. No, I've got lights. That's well, a nice view too. Yeah, it is. Um, Sarah, thank you so much. My we pleasure. will um, furnish our listeners with um, the show notes and links and all those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been an honour and a pleasure to be in your home, looking at your view and yeah. having the chat. It's yeah. really cool. It's been fun. Thank you. Pleasure. I no, thank you. <laughs> What a wonderful uh, experience I had just speaking with Sarah there um, in that non-disclosed location somewhere in Bondi. Um, So insightful and I can't wait to sink my teeth into this one wild and precious life. Um, Her latest book was only released a few weeks ago. Um, So thanking Sarah for her time and uh, that inspirational chit-chat we have. We had. Um, Now talking about inspirational chit-chats, next week... Uh, the legend, uh, regenerative farmer, an all-round good guy, uh, Martin Royds. Uh, Martin, um, is, uh, that inter- interview was actually it was wonderful. We did, uh, he was one of my earlier victims, uh, 2019, May, last, uh, last year, um, at the uh, Nutrisoil Sustainable Abundance Conference. I did a, did a talk there and shared the stage with Joel Salatin. And... Um, yeah, Martin was on deck and we had a fantastic yarn. So that's uh, something I hope you can be looking forward to next week. This podcast is produced by Reese Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.